Welcome back to Weekend Superstars. I'm John McHugh, and my co-host George Moulton is the guest this evening. On the hot seat. I noticed uh, when we did me last week, it was kind of nice being a, a host and then being a guest because we kind of give some of our stories right. on, on all the episodes, so you don't have to redo everybody. You know, we can go and kind of like... Yeah, I talked about big this points, one on you know? somebody's, yeah, we just do it the way we want to. I was trying to think of how to start, but I was like, I know how you got started, uh, but go ahead and tell everyone, where did music even come into your life? I mean, I, I grew up with it. Uh, I think even before I was uh, interested or even had the bug to be a musician or, or a singer, I just always loved it. I loved all kinds of music. I grew up with... Uh, with four brothers, uh, from my oldest being 10 years older than me and the youngest being about a year and a half younger than me. And every one of them had different styles, had different tastes. Mm -hmm. uh, Tim was uh, more of the rhythm and blues, uh, Commodores, stuff like that. Cameron was, uh, I guess, more the the rowdy honky-tonk, uh, dope-smoking, <laughs> uh, Leonard Skinner, Neil Young, that kind of thing, and Scott was the metalhead. You know, everything metal uh, Scott would bring into the house. And Chris was uh, bombarding me on the other side with Cher and Prince <laughs> and, and crazy stuff like that. <laughs> and then, you know, of course, I've always said my dad was uh, the one that really uh, turned me on to people like George Jones and Merle Haggard. And believe it or not, my, my first taste, the experience of Conway Twitty and people like that was was from our Uncle Bill. Yeah. Bill was a huge Conway guy. Uh, Big Al Downing, Billy Joe Rule. I mean, some people that, I don't, I don't know, unless you just followed country music a long time, you'd even hear some of these people. Right. But, so yeah, it was just all around me. My Uncle Roger on the other side of my family, my mom's side, the Lane side. Uh, Roger always played and, and uh, you know, sang songs. Uh, my great mamaw Hurley played the banjo. I never knew her, but, you know, I'd heard stories about her banjo So it was playing, in so the family. It was in the family, yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, what age did you get a guitar? <clears throat> guitar, I was 14 years old. And uh, I had, uh, man, I, I'd started writing poems or even some songs by the time I was, I don't know, 10 or 11. How come? What, what, what made you want to write? Man, I've just always been a real, uh, I don't know how to explain it, really. Uh, a sensitive guy. Sensitive, <laughs> maybe. I mean, you know, I don't know. Uh, emotional, just mm -hmm. very feeling, just very, you know, aware of what's going on. Yeah. And, you know, with, with those influences all around me, I mean, music was just when I would write something that I was feeling, you know, it would just come out as a song. And, uh, but I, as I was writing... Uh, you know, there was one particular time that, uh, again, Uncle Bill stepped into the picture and, and he was just uh, basically said, if you're going to be a country music singer, you've got to learn how to play guitar. So he took me down there to Olive Hill to Darwin Sturgill's Appliance and Music Shop, bought me an old Dixon guitar and, and uh, Mel Bay's big chord book, and man, it all started growing from there. Did you take lessons or was it all from the chord book and from here? The only lessons I ever had is once I, once I got to the point where I could put together three or four chords by myself, just learning on my own, uh, I would go down on Saturday evenings and Darwin, the same place I got the 
the uh, guitar from. Darvin was, uh, you know, he had some hits back in the 60s and stuff, and, and uh, Darvin would have a jam session back there, and we'd sit around on washers and dryers, man, and all the, you know, Jack Hall, Tom T's brother, and sometimes Tom T, if he was around, would be in there. And I'd sit down there, and I'd watch those old guys, and then I got to a period like through the week I'd go down and just see Darvin and say hey I want to I want to play this song can you help me out on this song and Darvin right. would sit back and show me some stuff but that's about as far as lessons went I know when I first started especially teenage years we talked about starting our first bands and stuff uh, none of my friends played yeah so I always gravitated towards older people you know and I got in with my uncle's band and I mean Pretty much my whole career has been with... I've been the youngest person in the band almost yeah. all, always. Um, did your friends play or did you have to seek out? Eastern Kentucky's a little more uh, little filled more, with little, musicians little, than little Northern musical, Kentucky is. Yeah. Uh, now I, I went to school with a boy uh, the same age as I am, David Ingalls. And we'll probably talk about David's later on in the podcast a little bit more because he comes back into play. Uh Best time, David was, uh, I think David was playing drums. And uh, it was me, and there was a kid named Gene Holbrooks. Gene Holbrooks was a pretty good little guitar player. Uh, I got to go on a sidetrack real sure. quick. I remember when Gene bought his first real guitar, we went to uh, Pied Piper Music Center in Huntington. I don't know if they even exist anymore. And uh, Gene had to get his guitar, you know, on the payment plan. And so he was filling out the application, and the guy just that the guy was writing it all down. And the guy asked him, said, "Well, what do you do for a living, Mister Holbrook?" And he said, "I'm a logger." He said, "Oh, a logger." I said, "Well, that's no problem." And I, I just told you, "Shh, don't tell him nothing else. It's good." <laughs> and uh, so he come away with you know a brand new Stratocaster, and and uh, but uh, those guys and, and and a guy by the name of Bobby Tackett played bass, and uh, Bobby was was a, was a nice guy. Uh, couldn't play bass to save his life, but he owned all the equipment. So we put Bobby in the band, and we had a PA, and we had me and David and Bobby and Gene. And most of the time, we'd unplug Bobby and just play our shows. But yeah, yeah, that was kind of our first band. It, it, we weren't very good at all, but uh, it, it was it was a start, right? You know, yeah, I mean, it was it was terrible, really. But <laughs> hello, how are you? How are you doing? We're uh, we're on location in the garage at the Molten household. It's a beautiful day outside, so we wanted to enjoy it. Um, at that point in your playing, was it uh, just for fun, or did you already have the drive to want to do something bigger? I already had a drive. I, I already had it. I mean, I think even at, at 11, 12 years old, I had to drive that that's what I wanted to do and that's what I wanted to be. Uh, you know, I, I never, I never concentrated on anything else. I, I left grade school. I left the eighth grade being a, you know, A and B honor roll student, and started playing music and went into high school and turned into a, just barely getting by student. <laughs> and by yep. the time I was a junior or senior, is I wasn't even getting by anymore. Right. You know, it, it it consumed everything that I did, and I started playing a, at about fifteen or sixteen years old. I started going over, there was a place called the Colton Country Jubilee. It was on 60, Route 60 in between the Grayson and Ashland. And they paid me $25 a night to go over and sing three songs. 
And at that point, I thought, you know, I've made it. Right. You know, and when when I when I got to sit outside out back after a break and and share a, uh, a you know a pint of whiskey with the eighty five year old steel guitar player, I knew, man, this I'm I'm there. <laughs> so, no, man, it it was always it from the time it started, it was just it was just it, it just ate me up. Yeah. I mean, I never wanted to do anything else. I'll, I'll fast forward a little bit because we got a lot to cover. Um, my first memory of you playing uh was hard luck yeah uh with that 92 93 mm-hmm. ballpark yep so that was a cold one going down ladies and gentlemen <laughs> how did hard luck come about uh well we go we got to dive back into david ingles yeah uh david's oldest brother older brother rodney i'd always heard stories about you know what a great guitar player he was and uh we kind of got together and we ended up with uh it was me and rodney uh, a guy from grayson rick stevens was a drummer another guy from grayson don collie ended up being the bass player and david at the time rodney decided we needed a keyboard player so we brought david in as a keyboard player funny thing was at the time david never played keyboard in his life <laughs> but he learned and he you know he would do the one finger deal whatever he could and we thought you know as long as he's in key we're good to go but then david got david got pretty darn proficient playing a harmonica yeah and that was something at the time at least in that area nobody had heard a whole lot of and it made us stand out and so we put it together, man. We played, uh, God, I don't know, maybe a couple, three years at the Gregoryville VFW. Uh, went in debt, bought a big giant PA system, and pretty much the whole time we were at the VFW, that's what paid for our PA system. And then, uh, man, we caught a break. I, I, and I don't remember how it happened. Uh, I haven't got a clue. But somehow or another, we ended up, getting a chance to go up and play at the Ragtime Lounge in Huntington, West Virginia. And for those of you that don't know, that's where Billy Ray Cyrus came yeah. out. Uh, you, you literally got off the exit and there was a, you could see the sign off the exit that said the house that Billy built. Mm-hmm. And uh, ended up being the house band there for, God, I don't know, two and a half, almost three years. Seven nights a week. Yeah. And doing that, even if you're starting out mediocre or halfway bad, time you get done with that, you're you're gonna be a pretty tight. Oh yeah. Group, you know. I mean, just you can't play that much and not get something happening. Mm-hmm. So, that's kind of how that happened, man. And those guys were, uh, you know, that was my first real big uh, introduction into uh, a band. What it was really like, you know. Uh, right. The whole the whole deal uh, the the good times the fights the arguments over mm-hmm. money the every, everything that comes with it and uh, but you know to this day though that's that's the the Ingles boys man that's that's two of my closest people in the world I yeah. mean I remember so what are we there's 13 years difference between us in age yeah. um, I don't have any memories of you at all that doesn't involve music. Yeah. I, you were already doing it, yeah. and you were already at a point where people were excited and people were 
thinking, you know, something's going to happen. And that's just yeah. always been in my brain. Like, we're going to go see George, and it's this, it was a, an event. Yeah. You know, we'd go see – and then, of course, I was maybe five, six, you know, maybe the first time I saw you play. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, – Damn, I'm old. I think there was um, – I don't know where it was. It may <laughs> not even have been hard luck. It might have been before. That my earliest memory was um, – some club and there was a cakewalk and and I and I and I won the cake. <laughs> That's the type of gig it was. Yeah. Um, but I just remember uh, my first memories was going to see you guys and you know, Rodney was the first time that I got to see you know live guitar like yeah. in my face you know yeah. he was one of my first heroes was sure. Rodney because sure. that's the first time I'd seen it and because Rodney was big rsv guy you know oh yeah and uh had the hat and had the vest and the strat yeah. and all that and yeah. uh he even had the poncho and the whole deal yeah i remember that i just remember it being a big deal where you guys um i know when i was first trying to make a career out of it i didn't know how to do it and all i knew was what i've seen in movies and i thought you make a demo and you ship it <laughs> off to people you know i thought that's how you did it. and i did that i did yeah. that for years i just oh, mailed yeah record label stuff and yeah. um what was your all's approach or were you just playing until luck hit you or did yeah. you have a man at that time a plan? i mean we i don't think any of us had a plan i don't think any of us really knew you know what the hell was doing yeah i mean other than we were uh we were playing music we were loving the stuff we was playing we didn't play anything i mean that hadn't changed in in 30 some years i you know, we we weren't playing stuff to to please anybody but ourselves, and just hoped that what we were playing pleased somebody else, and we got lucky, and it did. Uh, I remember <clears throat> the only time that we really uh, did anything uh, to that point is as we all decided we was, we were going to go to Nashville mm-hmm. for no other reason than just to go down there and and. Who knows what? I don't know. I think Scott Tackett even went with us on this trip. And your dad actually set us up with a meeting and got us hooked up with Ernie King. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Ernie took us over to the Gibson shop and showed I us I remember around. that. But I think we got up and we jammed at uh, Tootsie's or somewhere. I think it was Tootsie's. And me, I think it was me and Rodney and David got up and jammed with a band at Tootsie's. And this guy came up and he told us, you know, he was from whatever record label I don't even remember and he gave us a phone number told us to meet him at this place the next morning and all this stuff and we did and nobody had ever heard of him yeah <laughs> you know so it, it was just a big bruise yeah but uh you know we we were we didn't have a clue what we were doing man I mean we didn't we were just uh we were serious I mean we were deadly serious about the music we were doing and, and we wanted to do something with it but we just didn't have a clue as as how to do it or yeah. how to get there. And, uh, you know, those were uh, big-time learning experiences for us. And then uh, there was a couple of guys that started a record label, uh, a little independent record label out of Ashland, uh, Lester Blackburn and Gene. Uh, man, Gene's going to kill me for not remembering his last name. But anyway, they had... Uh, they had gotten some stuff worked out with uh, Dwight Whitley Keith's brother uh, to do a tribute type album to tri- to Keith, 
and, and a tour to go along with it. And so Dwight went in and recorded a bunch of key stuff with Keith, most of Keith's old band. And we ended up getting uh, signing the deal with them to uh, record for the Back to Me, Back to Be a Me album came from, and uh, go out and do some dates with Dwight. And uh, and that's that's about as close as a big time as we ever got right there. And it was fun. I mean, yeah, I I, I can walk around to this day, which is to me still a a pretty good little pretty good little deal and say I, I can say hey I sold out to Paramount Art Center in, in Ashland Kentucky mm-hmm. you know uh, well Dwight actually sold it out but I was there I was part <laughs> of it what was the, I'd say about that time you were probably starting to open for other big acts too weren't you we were man I uh, we were uh, we were still the house band at uh, at the ragtime and uh, there was a place that opened up across from the Huntington Civic Center and uh, there was a radio station, uh, I can't remember the call letters, but it was the Wild Dog. And so they opened up a club over there called the Wild Dog Saloon. And, man, it was a big club, like a two-story club, about 2,500 capacity. And uh, we did some, uh, we did a couple of uh, uh, little shows there. We opened up for 38 Special there one night. And uh, another year, Jeff Carson. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I think he had a song called The Dollar or something. I think it might have been even, it could have been written by Jamie Johnson. I, I can't remember, but but I told the guy, I said, man, I said, anytime you have these, you know, bigger acts in here, I said, you know, big acts. I said, I want to be on the show. And then I heard one night that uh, Merle Haggard was coming in. Right, yeah. And it was Merle Haggard and this other band. I'm like, who in the hell's these guys? So I called the guy, I said, dude, what's up? He said, I wanted to do it, George. He said, but these guys just, man, their price was so good I couldn't turn it down. I said, was their price nothing? He said, well, no. I said, well, I'll do it for nothing. All right, well, I'll put them on first, put you on second, and put Merle on last. So <laughs> we, we get there, and there's only like an alleyway, you know, where you can park. Yeah. And so Merle's buses, and, and Dave, here David Ingalls pops into the scenario again. David said, boys, I'm going to go up on the bus and meet Merle. I said, you ain't Go up there. He ain't going to let you on that bus. Next thing I know, David's standing at the bus door. It's wide open. He just waves us all in. And uh, so we get on the bus, and we go back to the very back of the room, you know. And I'm kind of expecting to go back there and, you know, drink some whiskey with Merle Haggard and all right. that stuff. But at this time, Merle ain't drinking any whiskey anymore because he's <laughs> obviously drank too much. Uh, Merle's partaking of the marijuana. Yeah. And... Uh, I wasn't really, wasn't really then, ain't really now, never was a, a big, uh, I, I don't have anything against it, I'm not yeah. t- turning it down, but, <clears throat> but you know, this was my opportunity, hey, I'm going to smoke weed with Merle, <laughs> yeah. it wouldn't, it wouldn't really matter what Merle was doing at the time, right. I hate to say that, but I'd have probably done whatever he was doing just to do it with him, Yeah. and uh, so I did, and it, we had a great conversation, we had, he was just a really, really cool guy and uh, Dave had some stuff at the time that uh, he pulled out and uh, Merle ended up being 45 minutes late for his show <laughs> thank you Dave Dave Ingalls that's all you baby oh man what was uh, let's see I guess um, I don't even know if I know this story but uh, how did that band end man that's, that's probably as good a question for uh, anybody else except for me I really don't know yeah. I mean, it just—I think it just kind of played its course. Because I don't have any memory uh, of it. I just feel like it dissolved. 
it, I think, it, I mean, to the best of the, that I can remember, and that's that's going to be the worst thing about this podcast is my memory sucks, but uh, to the best that I can remember, that's, that's pretty much how it happened. I mean, you know, we had, obviously, just like any other band, we had ups and downs, but there's no real uh, dramatic story of, you know, anything bad happening. And I remember, you know, even after the band kind of went their way, uh, you know, me and David and Rodney, well, I mean, we still ran and hang out together and did stuff. Mm-hmm. So I think, man, we were just we were just so young and so inexperienced when it started that we just got to a point where it was like, okay, well, we've done all we can do, and, and we just kind of let things go by the wayside. Yeah. I think because uh, it wasn't long after that you started doing acoustic stuff with Scott at yeah. Boomerangs and Cutters. Yeah. And that's when I first started playing, and that's when I first started coming in, and I'd sit in on a song or whatever with you. Um, and uh, But real quick, back to Hard Luck, I think one of the coolest things about that is just recently, in what, November of last year, uh, we've got all your music on iTunes. Yes. And it doesn't matter where we are or how long it's been, somebody says, do you got any more copies of that Back to Being Me record? Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, well, I, you know, it's on cassette. And I was like, you know, I think I've burned CDs for I don't know how many people of that. And uh, finally, I was like, I'm just going to put it out because yeah. people are always asking for it. And to this day, what, over, t- you know, what, 25, 20 years later? 20, yeah, oh, more than that, uh, almost 30, yeah. It's still relevant, you know? You know, I, you had songs already that were touching people to that point. It, what amazes me about that is, is I think that, uh, well, I think that's the deal. I think that that's the, if I if I've done anything or I can do anything, it's that when when I write something, uh, especially if it's something I've written, it's about an experience. It's it's about. Uh, real life it's about something that's happened to me and you know nothing really weird or different happens to me that doesn't happen to everybody else in the world mm-hmm. so I think I think somebody somewhere is always going to be able to to grab a hold of something like that man and relate to it and it be something I mean that 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 whole uh, cassette I sort of say a CD but it never was a CD uh, <laughs> just for those special few that I've yeah, earned it for it, it just it, it blows me away because it's awful I mean but the, the but standards that, of recording but that and, goes to show you that it doesn't matter right. as long as the song is good right. and I don't mean the song I mean the songs there's some great songs on it just the standard of the of recording and and uh, the, the time and frame that, that we were in as musicians and players right you know we weren't the greatest at all and the recording was just you know but it's like you go back and you listen to a Hank Williams song from 1948 right it sounds like shit exactly but that doesn't take away the fact that it's a, a tremendously great song and people to me that 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 says to me people don't really they're not involved they don't care about the production they want to hear something. They want to hear lyrics. They Perfection is overrated. Yeah. They want to hear something that touches them yeah. and makes them feel something. I don't know how many of those old, especially like in the 50s, uh, even Buddy Holly records, I mean, yeah. they, they didn't know how to end a song. They, yeah. they The band would fumble all over the place, and you can hear it on the recording. Yeah. 
and nobody cared because the song the song would be a number one hit. Yeah. You know, they, it was they, just they, a good song. They wanted to hear. They wanted to hear what you were saying. They wanted to hear the story. They wanted to hear the the whatever it was. If it, if it was a hurt, you know, they wanted to hear about the hurt. If it's happy, they wanted to hear about the happy. They right. Didn't, they didn't care, man. They weren't out there to. Uh, you know, dance to a beat. I mean, there's songs out that that even I, uh, I'll hear and I can't get them out of my head, but it's just because of that beat. It's got nothing to do with what they're saying. Yeah. You know. Uh, what was the next turning point in your career? I'd, correct me if I'm wrong, but I would say probably 98, 99 was your next big jump. Yeah. We went, uh, I went from that and, uh, Scott Tackett and I did the uh, the acoustic thing there at uh, Cutter's Roadhouse in Moorhead and then Boomerangs. And then uh, Bill uh, Bill Poe that had Boomerangs at the time, he, he came up with the idea that, uh, well, how it happened, I think me and Scott were doing like Friday, Friday and Saturday nights. And he started bringing a band in on Thursday nights. And then he got the idea that he wanted to start doing live bands all the time. And... So the easiest thing to do was just to join the two together. And so it happened to be, you know, Tim Howard, Dave Carter, uh, Randy Hampton. Uh, I can't was remember Paul who was. Paul in the band? Paul Bernstein? Paul, maybe. I can't remember if Paul was there. He was at, at a point, but I don't know if he was there originally. And But I've known those guys from my time in Huntington. Yeah. They all played over at a place called Houston's in Huntington. And I remember on Sunday nights if uh, – you know, if we weren't hopping at the ragtime, which we usually weren't, we'd all just load up in the car and go over to Houston's to listen to them. You know, they were as dead as we were, but, you know, it beat sitting there playing to nobody. <laughs> so I knew the guys, and uh, and that just started, man. That just uh, ended up steamrolling into a whole different beast. It was a whole – I mean, I remember that first time I saw you play with that particular band – was the first time I saw a band that sounded like the record that you knew the song from. Like, you, it didn't sound like a live band. You all were polished. Yeah. And it was, that was my first experience with that. Well, a probably, professional band. Probably mine too, John. Uh, they had, and those guys, you know, they had as much experience when I started with them. As I did when you started with me, right? You know they were already twenty, twenty-five years in, and and uh, man, it was just it was just a uh, it just blow your mind. I mean, I, I was I thought I had stuff going on, right? Until I got with those guys, and then I realized I didn't know shit about what I was doing, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, uh, but you know, it it just started out as kind of. Hey, these guys play great. I sing all right. We can do this, and, and we went on down the road with it. And then, you know, we kind of started thinking, hey, we can do something with this. We can go to the next level with this. And and that's when shit started getting serious. Yeah. That's when I started learning really fast that I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Yeah. But I was thankful because I was fortunate enough at that time to have somebody like Tim or like Dave or Randy or any of those guys, they were willing to teach me mm-hmm. or, or to at least get me on a level where you don't worry about what we're doing. You you do what you're doing and we'll take care of you. Yeah. And that was the first time I was ever part of something where 
a group of guys or, or whatever that were playing instruments and playing the music were more concerned as to what the crowd thought I sounded like than they sounded like. Yeah. And, you know, I, I just, all those things, man, it, it just blew me away. And, and, you know, I'd watch like Tim would be the, the band leader at the time. And I'd watch him kind of direct the other guys and, you know, with just signs or numbers, you know, we all talked about the number system, how right. it kind of screwed everybody's brain up, <laughs> at least me and you. But, uh, yeah, that's when, that's when I got, at that point, even though I'd played and been paid and on the bottom line of that, that's where you're called a professional. But at that point, when I started playing with those guys, that's when I really started feeling like I was an actual professional at what I was doing. Yeah. I'd say uh wasn't long after that, you got your first cut, what, right? Yeah. Uh, we came. We played We played the ragtime for, I don't know, maybe a year and a half, maybe not even that long. We came up uh, to Lexington, ended up, I mean, Trust me, we we played some some shitholes beforehand, but we ended up at Austin City, and uh, I ended up meeting up. Uh, well, this actually happened. I got to go back. I got to backtrack because the meeting with this with this lady was before all that stuff took place. I met a lady. She was uh, Bonnie Maddox at the time. She's Bonnie Sharp now, and uh, when I met her, man, I'd kind of quit. I didn't own a guitar. I didn't own nothing. And we were asked to sing a song at a mutual friend's son's wedding, uh, Buck Raven's son. And we did a duet, uh, believe it or not, I think it was a Brian White Shania Twain duet. <laughs> and uh, for some reason, she, she just, she was like, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing anything? Just burn out. I just got tired of it. But because of her... Uh, encouragement and, and her uh, her drive you know kind of got me back into doing what I was doing and then the next thing I know uh, you know we're playing Austin City three nights a week then we're in Nashville cutting demos of some of the songs I've written and you know she's she's in Nicholasville climbing fences and dropping demos in John Michael Montgomery's uh mailbox literally i mean she's just climbing over the fence and uh i didn't know that yeah i mean that's how i got started because i mean they later on they was telling us a story about seeing this woman on the camera and just kind of (laughs) you know and uh so i remember one night i was home i was home in all hill and it was like two o'clock in the morning and the phone rings and you know i pick up the phone because I'm living at home. I, yes, yes, I was in my 20s living with my, my dad. <laughs> but uh, but that's just because, you know, he was like, come home, do your music, don't worry about it. And uh, so we'll talk about him later. But So the phone rings like 2 o'clock in the morning. I grab it real quick, and I'm like, hello. You know, I'm, I'm maybe hoping it was a booty call or something. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, this guy's like, hey, this is John Michael Montgomery. And I'm like, I'll just hang up the phone phone rings immediately again I'm like what no dude this is really John Michael Montgomery I said I don't know who this is I said but this shit ain't funny I'm gonna hang up the phone I hung up the phone and I unplugged it from the wall so the next morning uh, Bonnie calls me on my little back then it was like a little Motorola flip phone yeah it's like what's wrong with you I said what do you mean 
that was John Michael Montgomery called. I said, really? And she's like, yeah. And I said, why the hell's he called me at 2 o'clock in the morning? And she's like, well, he was probably drunk. I said, well, I was too. And my head was hurting. I didn't want to. So, you know, then I felt like a big dummy. But, yeah, uh, she got the stuff to him. Uh, he he heard a song on there called Weekend Superstar, which is where the name of our podcast right. comes from. And, and he cut it. And, and done a... a an amazing job on it, man, and, and kind of he he got my foot in the door, you know. And he introduced me to John Doors. He he done so much. I mean, I can't, regardless of what I did, you know, to help or or not help my career. I can't, uh, I can't, I couldn't go through any time whatsoever in my life without having a great big load of gratitude toward John Michael Montgomery because he was probably. You know, he was one of those guys. He was on top, man. Yeah. And and he he liked what I did, and he believed in me, and he was willing to stick his neck out and help me, and he did. So that's how that happened, and, and that ended up being the, the reasoning behind me getting the, the Montgomery Gentry cut. Yeah. Uh, there was places that uh, Troy's mom and dad, the rag, or the grapevine, we used to hang out on uh, Sunday nights when nobody else was doing anything. Lynn Doolin, one of my one of the coolest dudes, a great singer in his own right, should have made it. He played down there on Sunday nights, and, and Eddie and Troy came in one night, and they got up on stage, and, and Troy's like, hey, I see our buddy George. I never met him. He's like, I see our buddy George Moten back there. I just want to say thank you, man, for the great song we're putting on. And everybody's like, man, why didn't you tell us? I said, I don't know what the hell he's talking about. <laughs> and I didn't. I didn't have a clue, but John Michael had slid that to Eddie and Troy, and they cut it. So, I mean, yeah, he – uh yeah, I can't say enough great stuff about him, man. I mean, he he's been just nothing but absolutely wonderful to me. And so you got the two cuts, and then when did you actually get a pub deal? Uh, it was shortly after that. I would say, well, I got the pub deal before I actually got the first check out of those two cuts. So yeah. it, it was really quick. And uh, so John Michael was with uh, John Doors, Hallmark. Uh, entertainment agency down there and he uh kind of got me with john and john was representing me and john was best friends with a guy by the name of bob beckham uh bob beckham when i signed my deal with bob he was the president of the company he was 74 years old bob beckham signed chris christopherson to his first songwriting contract uh bob and john had been uh in uh uh Columbine music, I mean, they, they just, they, they were top of the mountain. Top of the mountain. Point, yeah. And, uh, you know, so John took me over there, and, of course, it didn't hurt that I had two cuts walking in the door. Right. You know, but then we played him a bunch of my stuff, and then there, there just came a period where John was like, you know, uh, I said, man, I said, I don't, I don't get into this whole business side of it. I said, so you're my guy I'm just gonna so I went and hung out with all the guys and they just turned out to be just freaking wonderful fun hell rate my kind of people yeah and by the end of the evening I was like whatever the money is I don't care I want to be here I want to write songs here and that's when I signed my deal with Hori Pro Entertainment and uh, you know I can't say enough about Bob Beckham and Ronnie Gant Bob uh, believed in me 
not just as a songwriter, but as an artist, and did everything that he possibly could to help me there. And Ronnie did as well. Uh, I think Nicole would tell you that, you know, Ronnie and Gail Gant were kind of, they, they were our parents, our Nashville parents. Yeah. I mean, long after my deal was over, long after we'd moved back home, we would still make time every so often to go down and spend two or three days with Ronnie and Gail and just visit because, I mean, just loved them that much. I mean, Bob, Bob Beckham, when, when uh, Nicole became pregnant with Bracey, my daughter, uh, he brought me into the office and he was like, I don't want you leaving town. I said, well, Bob, I'm not. He said, why not? I know you're expecting a child. And that, that, he said, how much you need? I said, what do you mean? He said, 10, 50, 20, 30, 40, $50,000. Bob, I said, I'm good. I said, I couldn't pay you that back. He said, it ain't a loan, son. How much? And I didn't take it. And Nicole's always said, you big dummy, why didn't you stay? You know? But that's the kind of people they were. They were right. real people. They, they genuinely loved uh, music. And, you know, unfortunately, I think for me, I think by the time I got there, the scene had passed not only them by, but me too. Yeah. You know, well, so that was going to be my next late. question was I always found it interesting that you had two cuts before a pub deal, never got a cut when you had a pub deal, <laughs> yeah. and then got another cut after, after your pub after deal. After my pub well, deal. Do you, is that why? Because you think the scene had passed that group? They, I think part of it was. I do. Uh you know, I think those guys were, uh, I mean, Ronnie, you know, Ronnie came from uh, A. Cuff Rose music. You know, I mean, some of the biggest places in town. Yeah. And of course, Bob, you know, we just talked about him signing Christopherson. But the whole music scene had changed so much at that time, John. Uh, you know, this, this was the age of the Dixie Chicks. Yeah. Uh, this was the age of Garth Brooks. I mean, to give you a, a, just a little bit of aspect of how how weird it was, I was in Tootsie's one day. I can't remember why I was down there because we never went down to Lower Broadway, but we were in there one day and and maybe just maybe just hanging out. Maybe we just went down to have a beer. I don't know, but I remember standing on the end of the bar and there was a girl bartending and there was a girl singing. And uh, she was doing Stand By Your Man. And the girl bartender comes over to me and she said, you know, she said, that's what I hate about every female artist that comes to Nashville. They all have to try to do a Patsy Cline song. And I was like, I said, Tammy, why that song? That ain't Patsy Cline. And that's just how weird it is. Yeah. And I mean, same thing. I heard a story that, uh, and I don't know if it's true, I just heard the story that uh, one of the... Uh, record execs over at Capitol when Garth was there heard a Patsy Cline song said you know if we can get Garth and this gal right here to do it together and you know the dude was like well, that, that'd be great but she'd been dead for 35 50 years you know so it was like you had people that were responsible for signing acts and doing this thing the suits that really had over. no idea about the history of what country music is right yeah and I think that shows a whole lot today you know when you look at the kind of music that they tell us is country music. And I'm not bashing what's playing today or any artist. I'm just saying it's not country music. Yeah. What would you say then uh, that you took away from your experience down there as a writer 
since it technically didn't get any cuts and it wasn't successful, but you obviously have a, a, a spot in your heart for yeah. it. You know, what'd you take away from uh, it? It's a game. It's politics. Uh, 95% of it is that. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I'm not, anybody listens to this, I'm not bitter at all. I'm perfectly happy and content where I'm at, and I think that uh, whatever happened, God put me exactly where I need to be right now. Yeah. I'm having more fun playing music right now than I ever have in my life. And, uh, but that's what I learned. It's, it's politics. It's, it's more of a, it's more of a game that I can't play. Yeah. Not that I wouldn't if I could. Don't get me wrong. If I had that demeanor and I had that ability, uh, to just go in and, I'll just say it plainly. If I had the ability to just go in and kiss everybody's ass and do whatever they ask of me just to get what I wanted out of it, I could have done it. I just yeah. didn't have it. Right. I could. I, I just music is so personal and means so much to me yeah. that it's not something I barter on. You know, if somebody says, "Hey, you do this song and it's a hit," if I don't like that song, I don't care how big of a hit it is. I don't want to do it. I don't know how many times it's come out of my mouth when somebody said, man, why didn't George make it? I was like, because he won't kiss anybody's ass. It's the, it's the shortest, the quickest answer I can come up with. Well, but I was like, he won't do it. You know, And I respect you <clears throat> greatly for that. Yeah, I mean, but, it's, it's respectable. It's not very uh, uh, financially a smart decision. <laughs> but, you know, I just it's just like today. It's just like, you know, you've played with me. 10, 12 years, longer than that, maybe. Yeah, about 13 years now. And you know that the stuff we're doing now is pretty much the same stuff we was doing then. Mm-hmm. Because I'm not a, I'm not a, uh, like I said before, I, I'm just not a people, if I'm not happy and I don't like what I'm doing, nobody else is going to like what I'm doing either because it's not going to come off the stage that I'm enjoying myself. Right. I'm not going, I can't sit there and do stuff that I don't believe in. Right. Or I don't even like, you know, it it just doesn't, it doesn't work for me. And so, but that, and another, in another way of looking at that, that's, that's one of the things I like that I'll hang my hat on. I've been able to be successful doing exactly what I want to do. And, here, let's just say, let's say my my rise started at Austin City. That's twenty five years ago, right? And I'm still doing the same thing at Austin City right now. Yeah. So again, I say music is the heart of it all. If you do the if you do the good stuff, you do the stuff that people can relate to, people can feel. If you're singing a song and people are singing along, you're singing a song, you see somebody over in the corner and they got a tear in their eye. You're doing it all right. Don't worry about those people sitting over here saying, hey, you know, play this or play that. Worry about the people that you're touching. Yeah. Well, speaking of Austin City, I guess uh, we should probably touch on that since most people, I think, that listen to this show know you from Austin City. Yeah. And uh, we've already told a lot of those stories already, but... We already know that you came in and you were hot and there was a line out the door Thursday, Friday, Saturday night. I remember coming and having to wait at the Thornton's gas station. That's how far back the line would go, one in, one out, all night long. But uh, you were going in and 
playing. I mean, not. I mean, you're doing four hours, so you're doing covers too. But you're doing a lot of original material. Yeah. And they're singing every word back to you. What's that feel like, man? Because I mean, to this day, they still do it. You know, man, but that it, hasn't changed. It's the greatest feeling in the world. I mean, it it really is. It's it's a. Uh, it's something you have to. It's hard to explain. You you have to kind of moderate yourself on how it makes you feel, because it can. That's why people's heads will blow up. Yeah. That that it can be real easy to get real big headed and and really full of yourself, because you do at that time. In in that time, it's just like you're sitting there with your hand, and and all those people are right there. They're yeah. hanging on every word you say. And what you've got to be able to do is allow them to give back to you. You know, and you've you've been there. You've seen it a lot of times. We'll be doing whatever it is, over a woman, you know, uh, fly on, whatever it may be. And I'll just stop. I'll let them do it. Yeah. And But I get that from them. See, it's, it's not just me saying, hey, look how cool I am. They're singing my song and I don't have to. It's me sitting there and I'm getting the feel, hopefully getting the same feeling back from them that I give to them. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, man, there's there's no better feeling in the world than that. We talked when we had Mama on about how supportive that bar and that crowd at that time was yeah. for you and following you to showcases <clears throat> in Nashville or whatever show you might be opening for you know, McGinley Gentry or whoever. You know, like that bar became a family and... uh God, I, I can remember so many nights. I, this is funny, real quick. I used to get mad when I, the first time I'd start coming in there. Uh, me, and Mom, and Dad, and Katie, we'd, we'd show up. And I'd get mad because as soon as you'd take a break, you all would go straight to the basement. And I'd be like, why, why, why isn't George coming and hanging out with us? You know, he's only got 10 minutes. Is yeah. he not going to come hang? You know? And uh, I mean, I took that person. I was like, what, what's the deal? You know, is George being a dick or what? But. A lot of people did. But then when I started playing with you and realizing that everyone in there wanted to talk to yeah. you, you know, and yeah. you can't do that, you know. I mean, it's a little easier now, but back then it's I like tried. you would never get back on stage if you went and talked to everybody. I, I tried. I tried at a point to uh, be that. But, man, when you come down off stage and, and you're dealing with, uh, at that time, five, six, sometimes even 700 people. Yeah. If you can't spend as much time with everybody as you can with one person, you're better off not spending any time with anybody. Yeah. Because if you don't, like if I come over and I talk to you, and this guy over here has been hollering at me, and he's wanting to talk to me, and I don't see him or I don't talk to him, the next thing I know, George Moulton's a dick. Right. And just for your all's information, I can be. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Uh, <coughs> but I don't ever mean to be. I'm, I've right. never intentionally tried to tried to uh, blow somebody off or not talk right, to nobody. Yeah. There's just been times where I just I can't, and you know I think anybody would tell you we're human beings, and there's only so much stuff that we can deal with at one time. And when I'm up there on that stage, whether it be for those 45 minute sets, whether it be for an hour, whatever it is, for that time period, I'm giving you everything I have. Right. When that's when that period is over, whether it's that forty five minute set, there's really nothing left for me to do or to say. Yeah. I just want to go somewhere and sit down, blow it off, 
do something to get myself up and back ready to do that next 45. Yeah, it's crazy, man, because, like, I don't know, I mean, <clears throat> how many times I'd come to see you all, <clears throat> excuse me, and, uh, like I said, you know, the crowds were always big. Um, everyone had your T-shirts on. Everyone, you know, I'd go to the gas station beforehand and the people pumping gas next to me were blaring your music on the way yeah. to Austin City, <laughs> yeah. you know, and usually all bootlegs. Somebody burned it for their friends yeah. or whatever and word just spread. Yeah. And uh, it was it was the hottest show in town for how many years, you know? Five I mean, and a half years. At least, yeah. Yeah. So during that hot period, you know, what was it like trying, besides a pub deal, trying to get a record deal? What was that process? Man, I, I went for a, a period of probably two and a half, three years where I thought that there was some kind of curse that befell every record label or every record label executive that came up to see me. Yeah. Uh, Tony Brown, well, you know, played piano for Elvis, was the head of RCA, and uh, they had Tony Brown set up to come see me. You know, of course, we... You know, we advertise the shit out of it because we want people, we want to make sure it's packed. Right. And uh, the the day, it's like a Saturday, John Doris called me and said, uh, we're not going to be able to make it. Tony Brown fell down the stairs today and, and has a concussion and, oh, and three broken vertebrae in his <laughs> neck. Uh, I mean, I can't remember the guy's name. But there was another guy, literally, he died two days before he was supposed to come see me. Oh, my God. And so I was almost afraid anymore. I said, "Don't, don't bring nobody up here." I'll come to, you know, I mean, it was. It I'll got, come to you. It I'll got to crazy, you. man. And then uh, the only time it came close, and because I know everybody's gonna, you know, if if they need to know, here here's the deal. And contrary to what Ian Golf believes or thinks, <laughs> I am not the Godfather of broken. <laughs> uh, I had a deal. I had a deal, uh, Mike Bruschetta, uh, some of you may not know Mike, but you know his son, Scott. Yeah. Uh, just Taylor Swift, end of story. That's, that's right. Mike Bruschetta, or Scott Bruschetta. But Mike was big at Curb. Uh, Mike was involved in this, this whole deal at uh, Broken Bow and uh, offered me a deal. They came up to Austin City, saw me. Uh, John Michael had played that night. He had like a, a album release, or it might have been like the 20th anniversary of the Austin City or something like that. My mom, my dad, everybody was there. It was a big ordeal. Offered me a deal on the spot. You know, it was emotional. I mean, yeah. there was tears shed and all this kind of shit. And then I got the deal. Uh, they wanted 50% of my publishing, my writer's rights. And they wanted to have this producer come in that I did not particularly care for. And then they wanted me to cut three or four of his songs. And so I went around and around with him. You know, the first thing I did, you know, I got an attorney and I said, I'm going to do this right or I'm not going to do it at all. And uh, it just never came to pass, man. I mean, the deal just never came to where I, I was happy with what, you know, it wasn't what I envisioned my record deal was going to be. Right. And I got a phone call one night. I was at, uh, I was at Bonnie Maddox's house. She was uh, my co-manager at the time with John Doors. And uh, the phone call was simply like, hey, I'm heading out to Las Vegas, and I'm getting ready to talk to this guy, and I'm going to give him a deal. I'm going to give him your deal. 
unless you're ready to tell me yes right now. And I said, I can't. Next thing I knew, this guy uh, came out. Shit, I can't even think of his name right now. <laughs> uh, uh, you might have to help me. Oh, I'm you're serious? serious? I'm serious. I can't think of his name. Jason Aldean. Jason Aldean. <laughs> and what's weird That's is people think, is, is, is I've had people tell me I look like him, and I don't believe that at all. Uh, I remember one night. Uh, Duke was watching the CMAs and Jason Aldean and Eric Church came on stage and he called Uncle Bill and said, did you see his shit? George and John's at the CMAs. <laughs> but that's how it happened. I mean, I, I, I passed it up and, you know, God bless Jason Aldean. He, he he made it work. I just, I couldn't do it. Yeah. I mean, and that's just, uh, you know, you can say I'm a dumb ass, you can say whatever. I just, it had to be right and it wasn't right for me and I, I just said no. Yeah. But, again, again, I will uh, say this over and over again. Things happen for a reason, and I think I'm exactly where I should be right now in my life. Got a wife, two kids, playing music with you, mm-hmm. family, and having more fun than I've ever had in my life. So Yeah. Well, let's take a short break because i all got right. more questions for you. And we're right. running out we, of time. We're going to do a long So we're, we're going long on this all one, all right? So, all we'll, right. guys, we'll be right back. Hang in there. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in with us. That was part one with George Moulton. We're getting ready to come back with just a little bit in a second, but I just want to let you know for those who haven't already, make sure and go to Apple or Spotify or Amazon Music or wherever it is that you stream your music and check out George Moulton. We've got all kinds of stuff on there and uh, pretty much all the way from his history to Hard Luck Band to current day. Go stream some George Moulton music and now back to the show. All right, welcome back to the show. Part two with our co-host, Mr. George Moulton. And uh, we've pretty much covered uh, your uh, your prime. Yeah. Real quick, outside of the music thing, uh, you, you put me on a spot on mine. I'm going to put you on a spot on okay. yours. But uh, we've already mentioned Duke a few times. Yeah. Uh, your dad. And uh, you mentioned my dad always being a big supporter and coming to the shows and stuff. And uh, I thought about this today, actually. I think it's funny. I've never really... <laughs> put two and two together until today that they both had their own sayings dad's you'd be in the crowd you hear skinner back or yeah. fucking tremendous you know yeah. and dukes was at a boy george <laughs> and uh at one point we all even had license plates that yeah said, i still got them at a boy george yeah. <laughs> man uh you said you know is, is dad still in the crowd for me you know do you still see him yeah do you still hear that oh yeah because uh, more, so more just, than seen i hear the Skinner back. Yeah. So so just just to give you a, a preface on where Attaboy George came from, when I was a kid, you know, of course, and you 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 had to have grown up this way too. Uh, Andy Griffith was still is in my house. I mean, my boy's ten years old, and I, you know, he don't know anything but the old school stuff. Yeah. But uh, Don Knotts, Barty, was. Uh, just the funniest dude ever was. So when Don started making all his movies, one of the first movies I ever watched him was The Ghost of Mr. Chicken. And, you know, after Barney spent the night in the haunted house, he's making his speech, you know, <laughs> and there's old drunk guy, Attaboy, Luther! <laughs> and that's where that came from. <laughs> and so it didn't matter where I was at, you know. I mean, it would... So, at first, it embarrassed the shit out of it. Right. You know, 
I'll be singing, you know, trying to be all serious. Add a boy, George. <laughs> Shut up. But then later on, man, like, you know. It was a calling card. It, it was, yeah. man. And it, it uh, but, you know, as the same as you said, you know, you talked about your mom. I think that's one thing that uh, both of us are very fortunate in. I don't think either one of us have ever lacked in support from our family. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, my dad, just like your dad, I mean, it, it, you know, he started out driving me to shows. That's how young I started doing it. Yep. He was taking me to them. And, uh, you know, man, it, it's uh, it's different now. And just, I, I got to tell a quick story, and, it's, and it, it means the world to me. And some of the guys, well, one of the guys are still there. But after we took our break, and you went and did your uh, uh, thing with the... Uh, the Renahans. The Renahans. Yeah. And, you know, I put together Marty, Steve Richmond, Keith, Flora, and our first show was scheduled and ended up being scheduled the, the weekend. That Wednesday night, my dad passed away. And... Uh, so, man, I, I thought about it, and I thought about it, and I was like, you know, I called the guys and told them what had happened, and uh, they were like, well, you want it, you, you know, we're just going to cancel the show, and I was like, nah, I can't do that, man, you know, because that would be just like you were talking last week, Duke would have come back somehow or another and kicked my ass. Right. He would have wanted me to be on that stage doing what I was doing. So, you know, I called, I called and talked to my stepmom, Jill, and I was like, you know, can we do the arrangement this day and that day? Because I think he would want me to be on stage that night. Yeah. And she agreed wholeheartedly. So, I mean, yeah. Man, he was, uh, a as a man, you go through, and you know this, you go through all these different stages with your dad. First, he's your dad. He's teaching you. Nine times out of ten, he's beating your ass. <laughs> And then, then you kind of get to that spell where you're like, I want to be completely different than what he is. I want to do my own thing. I want to be this. And then all of a sudden, at some point, you find out, no, wait a minute, I, I want to be just like him. Yeah. And then, you're, and then at a certain age, you, it's like, he's still your dad, but he's, he's most important. He's, he's the best friend you've ever had. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think some of the biggest, uh, uh, Experiences are the biggest things that I miss about my dad being gone. It's not just the fact that he was there at the shows every night, but that if we were playing, like say we were playing Morehead and I'd stay with him, it's sitting down at the kitchen table and, and having, you know, just talking after we got done. Yep. So, yeah, man, that's that's a huge, huge thing. But, yes, I still hear Attaboy George about every night. <laughs> so I do play, I. At least two or three times. That, and I'll, I'll see him sitting on the monitor smoking a cigarette in third set yeah. when he's not supposed to be and, smoking yet. And That's you another and I thing. Have, Can we smoke in here yet? You and I have this uh, in common. We have a, a certain sign. Yeah. When, when, when the, it's good. When, the, when it's good. Yeah. And... We don't have any words for that sign, but if we did, that those words would be fucking tremendous. Right, yeah. <laughs> but before we get off here, I know you might have one or two questions, but I want to say, going back to my Nashville days, I want to give, make sure that I say a big, 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 huge shout-out to not only Ronnie Ganton and Bob Beckham, but to Mike Geiger, to Woody Mullis, 
to uh, Mike Huffman and and Trey Matthews. Yeah, that was four of the guys that I wrote with the most, and they really, really, really helped me in uh, becoming a better songwriter than I already was. Yeah, and I also got to say a big shout out to Lucy Bowers. Oh yeah, Lucy was the uh, she took care of the royalties and and answering the phones and. And basically babysitted my ass for about two and a half, three years while I was down there. So <laughs> still love them all. Miss you, Lucy. Um, so after Austin City is when you got into the bar business. Yeah. And I uh, started out in Winchester with Moulton's and ended up in Moorhead, which is now Frankie's. But it was Moulton's with American Genuine Honky Tonk, right? American Genuine Honky Tonk. And became owner or a co-owner and house band yeah. in Moorhead. Uh, that was similar to Austin City for a while um, with the yeah. college crowd um, and I remember the first time I came to the show it was probably the first night you played but uh, that was when I started experiencing uh, Fly On it, it ended yeah. every show with Fly On and then That's My Job yeah became a staple yeah and just last weekend some we did, did somebody request it or did you just it, i just, think it just i it. think it just i was feeling it uh but i thought you know i said man that's two of the most depressing ass fucking songs <laughs> to end a night with i was like why is he doing that but it worked and they were wanting it yeah and then like we'd have i hated when you did it too but there'd be 50 <laughs> fucking people on stage with us singing fly on and i'm always i'm looking out for my pedals and trying like don't step on my shit don't spill shit <laughs> And, uh, but it became this thing, you know, it was a totally different yeah. thing yeah. than what I had experienced at Austin City. Man, when, when, uh, I mean, I'll forgo Winchester. That was, that was, a uh, I probably cussed more on this podcast than I have any <laughs> But that, that was a clusterfuck is what that was. Yeah. I mean, it was a good experience. It, uh, it, it gave me an idea of what, uh, at least gave me an impression of what all the bar owners that I'd worked for before, why they bitched so much. So right. I understood it after that. Moorhead was a great experience, really. Uh, you know, uh, going into business with uh, Butch and Franny Wagers at the Plaza. Uh, and we, we named it Moulton's, whatever. And, you know, my thought going down there was, man, I'm going to go down there and all the old, old fogies that, supported me in, in Olive Hill and Moorhead and they're all going to come back and we're just going to pack the place right happened one night first night I was there that happened then they weren't there anymore because they're old right and you know and I'm old I just ain't got enough damn sense to quit but then man the college kids started catching on or just getting into what I was doing Mm-hmm. It blew me away. I mean, it really did. I mean, it got to the point where I was like, "Do they realize that I'm doing like George Jones and shit like that?" <laughs> right. You know. Uh, but it was man that that the first three or four years that that whole class. I mean, I I mean, there's there's some people that I you know I met there that that were in college that I would call, you know, buddies and friends of mine to this day that I still keep in touch with. And it blew me away. Yeah. I couldn't believe that these kids, I mean, by this time, these kids were 
you know, 20, 25 years younger than I am. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like I was, you know, entertaining kids that might be five, six years younger than me. Yeah. These were kids. I'm an old man. These are kids, and they're out there, you know, fly on. And, and uh, man, uh, one one particular guy, I got to give him a shout-out, Mays. He, he came in there, and this is this is the first – First night I ever met the guy, he was he was just on me all night long, talking, man, love flying. We were actually in the parking lot after closing time, and I, I was walking across, and I heard these guys holler at me, and I walked over and talked to him. And this guy, he's like probably six five, grabs me in a headlock. He said, "I promise you." He said, I'm the only black guy in the world you know that goes to sleep every night listening to Plow. <laughs> and I thought, okay, well, whatever, you know, yeah. that's that's good. But one of the one of the coolest guys I've ever known, man. I mean, just and, and he became a friend. Chris Childers from Maysville. Yeah. Became a friend. You know, so that was if you hit the right spot at the right time with the right people, you're going to make connections. Mm -hmm. And I've been lucky enough to do that more than one or two. Yeah, you've had, you've had several different waves of generations, which is why you're so inspirational to these other acts that are coming up. I mean, I don't know how many guys that are playing now, you know. And like Donnie even said, you know, like you should go out and see other bands play because you don't know what it would mean to them to yeah. see you in, in the audience, you know, because. Uh, you know Tyler Booth, for example, is I mean he loves you and he's out there doing his thing and doing great at it and uh, in a, in a heartbeat I think if you said come do this you know with me yeah. he'd probably be you know here the next day. Um, what's it like having that you know over some people like where you know constantly somebody's coming up to you and saying you know you inspired me or you know and for me too you know. That's why I play with you, not just for, because of family. It's been a inspiration since I began. It's humbling. I mean, it, it just uh, it makes all the other shit that you think about with music seem unimportant. Mm -hmm. You know, did did I did I make it? Did I not make it? Was I successful? Was I not successful? Did I have hits? Did I not? It makes all that stuff irrelevant. Yeah. Uh, when when somebody, anybody, I mean, you know, Tyler's, here's what I love about Tyler Booth. Tyler Booth is, at least to me, okay, is one of the most genuine, respectful young men that, that has ever came up and spoke to me. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, man, what more could you ask for? Yeah, I mean, if I had if I had to choose, if I had to sit down and say, you know what what I would want my legacy in music to be, it would be that I inspired other people to do great things. Yeah, and go farther than I did to do more than I did, and that, and just to sit here and think that's because of me. That's better than being known for two old people fucking, that's right? Better than being known for <laughs> But <laughs> since you mentioned that, for all those people that don't know, we need we need to explain where that song. Clear came the air. From. And 
to all those people who may request it after this podcast, it's retired. I don't do it anymore. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to better myself. But uh, my co-host, John McHugh, his mother, asked me one time, was it their 20th anniversary? 25th, I think. 25th. Said, I want you to write me and, ja- me and Jack a song for our 25th wedding anniversary. Okay. And you know, you know how I write. I'm not one of those people who say, hey, write a song about this and I write it. Yeah. It's got to be something, you know. So obviously, I, I never wrote it. And they showed up in the bar at Moorhead one night and she just walked. This is the Moulton family for you. This is how brazen they are. Edda just walks on the dance floor and grabs a hold of Jack and says, play my fucking song. And I don't have a song. Yeah. So I just uh, tell the guys to give me a G chord and first words come out of my mouth is two old people fucking. And I, just, <laughs> I just wrote it from then on and and thankfully we all have about the same demented sense of humor and, and Edda and Jack laughed her ass off and danced to it and that was their song. Right, and I guess for the next, I mean, we pl- I remember playing up in Maysville at like a Moose Lodge or a, a VF a something. Yeah, and I had to play that song every year for I don't know how long. That's so funny. You like how I segued there, didn't you? That was nice. Yes, that was nice. <laughs> That's professionalism right there. I do have a couple questions left All before right. we end. Um, one thing, real quick, I'm gonna brag on you. Uh, I've probably seen you play more than anyone. Yeah. That I know, at least uh, over the years, seen every every era, and uh, your voice gets better. It's like one of those uh, ages, like wine. Uh, there'll be nights where I'm going through the motions, just like anybody that gets burned out or whatever. Yeah. I'll be going through the motions, and you'll hit a note I've never heard you hit before, and I'll I'll quit playing, you know, and. I look over at Marty or Tim or whoever's playing with us and like, Jesus, you know, like, <laughs> where, where did that come from, you know? And one of the funniest memories I have, we played, I think it was Poppy Mountain, and uh, we were opening for Shenandoah. Hmm. And uh, we closed with uh, How Great Thou Art. And uh, Marty Rayburn's standing over on the side. He's on my side of the stage. And he's already got his guitar on. He's, they're getting ready to hit the stage, you know, right after us. And uh, I can see him smiling, and he's singing along. And so I, I was close enough. I said, take my mic. Come, come on up and, and sing it with him. And he just gave me this, you know, no, no, real polite no. And I'm, okay, well, whatever. And we walk off stage, and uh, he grabbed me. And I'd never met Marty before. Yeah. And uh, he said, man, I didn't mean any disrespect. I, I, I appreciate you asking me to come up there. There wasn't no way in hell I was going to sing next to that guy. And my first thought was, wow. is that a compliment? Yeah. <laughs> Did I sting? <laughs> or, or what? You but know, I, I mean, what blows me away about that is is he's one of my favorite singers. Right. I always loved Shenandoah. Uh, Mama Knows. Yeah. I can listen to that song right now. If we play that song right now, I'd, I'd be over here bawling like a baby. Yeah. And uh, the only thing I can say to that, John, is, you know, I mean, I don't I don't know if, if this this may surprise people, it may shock people even. But uh the Lord has taken very good care of me. I have uh I have done many things. Uh 
uh, in my lifetime that I shouldn't have, and I'll probably do many more things in my lifetime that I shouldn't. <laughs> but uh, he is my Lord and he is my Savior, and, and I've done nothing at all to take care of my voice. I don't do the vocal exercises. I don't do the human. I don't. I don't do anything. Yeah. You know, it's just like when we 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 did the the exile show up at the uh, Mountain Arts Center. Yeah. And and uh, uh, Ian's sister came up and said, "What kind of you know vocal exercises you do?" But to hit those notes, and Ian said, "Well, he smokes a pack of Marlboro Lights and drinks a case of beer." <laughs> That's me, man. I mean, I, that's why I keep doing what I do. For some reason, he's allowed me to continue doing this, and I don't mean this. I don't mean this in any uh, egotistical way whatsoever. But I do. I, I agree to the point where I know myself and I know my abilities, what I can and can't do, and I believe that. He's just continued to bless me through the years, man. I, I'm doing stuff now, and part of it's experience. Part of it is just like, you know, some nights I'll do something, I'll, and I'll think to myself, man, I just pulled that out of my ass. And I don't know. Yeah. I'm just thankful. I'm thankful that I still can. Thankful that I'm, I'm 50 years old. I don't have to tune a half a step down. I still do everything where I did it when I was 19 years old. Right. And that's all I can say, man. I, I'm just thankful that he's he's still allowing me to do it and doing it at this level. Of all the people that you've met as far as, like, idols or people you've looked up to, what's the best compliment you've gotten from somebody that's really hit you? Man, that's tough. Uh, Eddie Montgomery once told me I was the best country music singer he ever heard and that meant a lot to me it really did but I think the coolest thing uh, that I ever got out of anybody and we'll go back to Bob Beckham when Bob was uh, the president of my publishing company and we'd mentioned before that he's the guy that signed Chris Christopherson yeah. so Bob was always really cool about I mean, I, I don't know why, but he was really cool about, you know, if some of his old buddies stopped by to meet him or talk to him, he always wanted me to meet him. I met Jerry Reed. I met Waylon Jennings with Bob. And I met Christopherson. I don't know if Bob played him any of my stuff. I just went down, and, and Bob was like, Chris, this is George. This is one of my writers. Love this guy, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, but about 15 years later, when Bob passed away, we, me and Nicole went down to his funeral and, uh, I was standing there talking to Ron again and this guy came up behind me, put both hands on his, on my shoulders and I turned around he said, man, it's good to see you again. Fucking Chris Christopherson. Yeah. So I guess the biggest compliment that I could think. Was that, that he knew who you were? That probably the greatest song. <laughs> At least the greatest country songwriter that ever lived remembered who I was. Right, yeah. That's awesome. Well, in uh, order of our tradition, I guess, we'll, we'll end with the usual. You got a favorite place you played and a bucket list place that you'd like to play. 
before you die. And I knew these were coming. <laughs> and I thought about them all day long. Uh, man, I, I'll be honest. And I mean, I know this is going to sound crazy. It's going to sound maybe stupid to some people. Favorite place I've ever played? The Austin City Saloon. Yeah. Uh, my greatest memories. Uh, my greatest performances. My greatest accomplishments. My wife. My family. Everything came from that place. Yeah. So, I mean, I played bigger places. Played in front of a lot more people. But, yeah, that's my favorite place I've ever played. As far as a place I'd want to play, that comes into a whole different avenue as well, man. What place is going to offer me more than that? Right. Uh, I mean, I'm sitting here 25 years from the time I started there, and pretty much everything that's around me came from there. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'd say, you know, I want to say the, I could say the Opry like most people do. But to be honest with you, where the Opry is now, I've been there. I've stood on the circle. I think if I could play one place, I think the Ryman. Yeah. To be there with the, uh, with the Martha White banner behind me like it used to be <laughs> when I used to watch it on TV. Yeah. Uh, that would be my favorite place. Or, it's never going to happen, but one shot on Heal with Buck Owens and, and uh, <laughs> that that would be it, man. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know. I, I love playing music so much, I don't care where I play it. Right. I really don't. Uh, and before we get off here, I just, I want to say this. I love playing music with you. Same. And I want... Uh, Everybody's listening to know that there was a time where I could have just said, no, I'm done. And this guy right here that I co-host this show with, uh, he lit a fire under my ass. He made me feel younger than I am. He made me feel like I still had something to offer people. And, uh, you know, I'll just... uh, I'll never retire again. When I retire the next time, it'll be the day I'll just fall over somewhere. <laughs> well, I, I sure uh, have been inspired by you just as much as everybody else has. And I love being in your band and look forward to being in your band for a long time, man. Love you. And I like doing this podcast with you. It was fun to interview you. <laughs> man, I love it. I just, you know, uh, I, I, I did crack a beer open about 4 o'clock today. I thought, man... You know, I want to get in the right frame of mind to do this. And uh, I just want to be honest. You know, it's uh, music is whatever else I'm doing, it's who I am. That's right. And it's always going to be who I am and what I am. And and I just love doing it. And I'll just keep doing it. Well, that'll do it, man. I just want to get more listeners than Mama did. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Well... Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time. Later. Later. You've been listening to Weekend Superstars with George Moulton and John McHugh, and obviously tonight's guest was our very own George Moulton. Me! (laughs) 
Guys, we are going to be um, playing this Friday at the Tipsy Cow in Georgetown. If you get a chance, come on, check us out. And uh, make sure and go check us out on Apple Music and Spotify, Amazon Music. Follow Weekend Superstars. And until next time, later.